Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just Schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. This concept is founded on love and justice for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible. The next three episodes of Just Schools are going to be a little bit different than some of the ones that have preceded it. We're going to be talking to authors of three books that have a lot of relevance for educators and just as human beings because there's a lot of wisdom in them. So they are going to be a little bit longer than some of our previous episodes because we're digging into the ideas in their books. And so today, I'm really excited for you to hear from Jen Pollock-Michelle on timely wisdom. So how do we use time well because of wisdom, not just through techniques? So if you're like me, you're always looking for ways to use time more effectively and ways to, as Jen puts it, fit it all in. And if you've been doing it long enough, you realize that that never actually happens. And so she talks about stopping simulating motion. And I think a lot of us do that when we get busy to feel productive, to feel like we're actually doing everything that we're supposed to do. And then ultimately, we have to just acknowledge that we have limitations. And so I think that's freeing. And so I hope this conversation is an encouragement to you. Today, we have a longtime friend and amazing author of his five books now, right, Jen? This mm-hmm. fifth book just yeah. came out. All right. And author of Christianity Today's Book of the Year was her first book, Teaches to Want. So uh, way to jump on the scene with that. I can make no such claim with any of my books. Uh, great book, Teaches to Want. And she's written uh, a number in between and just released in December her fifth book, In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. So I was actually talking to her husband, who's a longtime friend, good friend, and he mentioned that the book had come out when he told me the title. I was like, oh educators need to hear this right now. I need to hear this right now. And so I got the book on Kindle quickly, uh, texted Jen, and she was willing to join us. So uh, Jen Pollock-Michelle is uh, a good friend. And I have to say in the introduction, as I was reading it, you mentioned your freshman year roommate at Wheaton College a couple times in the introduction. And I was very interested in that because uh, Jen's roommate went on to become my wife, Carolyn, <laughs> a number of years later. And like I said, I'm a longtime friend of her husband, Ryan. Uh, he's one of the best men that I know. And I can still say that Ryan and I married up significantly. So <laughs> <laughs> grateful for those two Wheaton roommates. So uh, Jen, first question for you. Uh, why do you, why did you feel a need to write this book right now? Yeah, a book about time was and a book that I was writing in the pandemic. So I think the pandemic was this experience of this disruption of time. I think that and especially this disruption of the expectations that I could manage time. And time was not anything that any of us could manage during the pandemic. You know, we were just simply like shoved into this global crisis and just kind of figuring out how to do it, you know, how to like live in it and inhabit it. And we were living in Toronto, which was um, where we had the longest North American lockdown. So we, yeah, we had a lot of practice in disruption in in terms of time. So I think that was it. But then also just um, 
I think grappling with the disruption of time on a global scale, but then also just my own sort of internal anxieties during the pandemic, which were not really related to what if I fall ill or what if my family members fall ill? I mean, of course I had those worries, um, but it was really more about how am I going to get things done? You know, I'm used to being in motion and now I'm not. And I got to get back to that. Somehow I've got to get back to that. And I was actually just speaking to somebody else on a podcast and I use the word simulate motion. And I think that's really what I was doing early in the pandemic was I'm, I was simulating a kind of motion, a kind of productivity that felt very consoling. And, you know, that only lasted for so long. And then I just realized something's something's got to give and I, I have some learning to do. Yeah, no, I think... COVID for everybody, I think particularly in Toronto, I, I, I remember talking to Ryan on Zoom and I felt like he was running Allstate Canada from his basement. <laughs> yes, um, and, uh, and, and I knew <clears throat> you were also living with a, a family with many needs that, uh, that you know were going all over the place and, and you are two of the most productive people that I know. And I think that simulated motion, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I feel like there are times in life, not just during the pandemic, but when I get particularly busy and lose focus, I do a lot of that simulated motion mm. to feel like I'm being productive when in fact, I know I'm not. But I, I wanted to go back to in, in the introduction to your book, you, you talk about after college graduation, being hired to teach French and English at a high school on Chicago's North Shore. You say this within months of my hiring, my department chair persuaded me to apply for graduate school. And he said this, and I, I, I felt when I, when I heard him say this, I was like <laughs> I've said this to so many prospective masters and doctoral students. It's never going to get any easier, he said. And then you write, weirdly nodding at the picture of his two young children <laughs> atop his death. And then you say, for the next several years, I really found time to plan ahead. And then you share a humorous anecdote about finding a dress in 20 minutes for a bridal shower at a department <laughs> store. And then you have five children, including twins. And so my question for you is, how have you grown as a leader? Uh, you know, you were an educator for a while, but as a human being and a follower of Christ through some of the hard lessons you have to have learned as a teacher and parent as you've thought about how you use time in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. I think that probably one of the biggest lessons I, that I've learned is like, I can't be savvy enough to fit it all in. I mean, I think, you know, I can think back to, okay, yeah, in my 20s, I fit in teaching school full-time, working on a master's part-time. I also had coaching responsibilities at the high school because, of course, I got dragged into the athletic director's office who said, well, if you hope to keep a job or earn tenure, you know, certainly you could probably help us with one of these coaching, coaching positions that we have open. So, you say yes because you want to secure your position. And it's not as if you even really feel like you have a choice. Um, and I think back in my 20s, I was like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll learn. And I think one of the things that I always wanted to do was just learn how to manage time better. And that's why I was always reading time management books. Like, okay, I'll just add more and more into my life, but I could get better and better at managing it. So nothing will ever have to give. And that even lasted, I would say, probably until about the twins, you know, finally like, okay, I have five children and they are seven and younger. And, you know, there's just not enough creativity to get it all done. And so I think one of the lessons of like, it's not about this kind of elusive balance. I'm not doing it wrong if I feel like I can't do it all. I'm actually just living like a human being. And 
one of the things too that I think I started to realize, and this was just so late, it was honestly, I think, as I was reconsidering the story of time that I lived with, is how individualistic time management really is. It's so often about your own personal aspirations and ambitions. What do you want to get done? What's on your someday bucket list? And what kind of like heroics are you going to perform in order to get those done? And it just leaves out like all this, this idea that you're a human being entangled in the web of, of, you know, interconnected relationships. And so I think over the last couple of years, I mean, I, I think it's been recent learning of like, how do I rely more on other people instead of just trying to, you know, create, be Herculean um, with my time? And then how do I accept what it means to live with contingencies because I'm in this web of relationships? So, you know, I tell the story in the book of how we have now moved from Toronto to Cincinnati in order to care for my mom who has Alzheimer's. It's just an example of one contingency. When you accept that you're a human being in relationship with other people, you don't just get this like perfect, um, uninterrupted landscape of time. You get, you know, you get phone calls <laughs> and you get unplanned obligations and responsibilities. And, and the interesting thing is, I think I'll just finally say this is that that's, that's not an evil. That's a great good. Oh, yeah. I, I love that because I think you're, as I was reading your book, I was seeing many of my, own proclivities being animated on the pages of the book. And I push hard against people trying to be that superhero person, trying to do everything and add more and, and create efficiencies that allow you to do more than is humanly possible because somehow that it makes the work about us. It doesn't make yeah. us rely on others. And in fact, that diminishes what others can do around us. So Liz Wiseman refers to people as multipliers, the people that come alongside and accelerate the good work of others and catalyze that work because it isn't about them. And as I've been thinking about it, I want to be much more of a catalyst than I want to be a superhero. I don't want the work Mm -hmm. to be about me, but in order for me to be a catalyst, I've got to allow other people to come alongside me and use their gifts to work alongside me toward a common purpose, whether that's raising a family or growing spiritually or growing as an educator. I'm not doing that well when I do that all on my own. And I think I spent a a fairly long time before I kind of got smacked in the head and realized you just can't do that. And Mm -hmm. that actually isn't a healthy way to live. And it's not how we're called to live. And it certainly wasn't how Christ or his followers lived. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like there's a self-centeredness to that. Even when I was trying to help other people, I was still making it about me. So Mm. you have, you have a great line uh, in your book here. You talk about what wisdom is. And I think this is really timely wisdom. In other words, is not the efficient business of hacking life. Wisdom has nothing to do with techniques and its proposed efficiencies. That's why it rarely factors into time management advice, which is largely preoccupied with questions of how rather than why. So with with that framing, which I, I really appreciate that framing, what's your best wisdom for teachers and administrators who are juggling so many demands right now, uh, both inside and outside of classrooms and schools? Well, to tie that back to what we were talking about previously about recognizing like our communal um, identities, wisdom is communal. It is 
uh, just that's just how it is. It's by definition, wisdom is a tradition that grows out of communities and it's passed on from generation to generation. And so you don't have wisdom if you're not, you know, learning from your forebears and you're not considering generations to come. Wisdom um, in just in terms of kind of like the scope, it, it's so generational. Um, and I think one temptation in time as we live in time today is just we maybe only think about the future. There's a lot of research about that, that time scarcity creates kind of this idea of like, I've got to hoard time for the things that are coming in the future. We're very future oriented. So we don't think about the past a lot. So I think educators teachers, leaders have to always be thinking about who's gone before. <laughs> what it what were, you know, what traditions can I learn from? You know, I don't have to like invent everything from scratch. Um I don't have to per, you know, be seduced by chronological snobbery like C.S. Lewis said, like old books are really good, you know, and there are a lot of things that people have known in the past and I can learn from them. So wisdom is communal and it is historical. Um, wisdom is teleological too. You know, it does have an end purpose in mind. And, you know, we know from the book of Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom, the first principle of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And, you know, this idea of like your whole life just being surrendered to God. Um, and that seems very elemental. But again, if you kind of back away from wisdom, you start to get into that mentality of like the quick fix that and it's never character driven, right? I mean, if you scroll on Instagram and you want to learn how to like write, create efficiencies with your time, for example, it's all about the strategy and the technique and not about the person. Wisdom is about you living your life. It's not just how you live your life, but who are you as you live your life? What character is required for the roles and responsibilities and vocational callings that you have. And so, and wisdom is slow. That's the other thing I guess I would say too. When we think about educators, um, you don't, you don't become a fabulous teacher, parent, leader overnight. You don't actually, you can't probably even do that in five years. Like wisdom takes time. Things take time. Your own growth takes time. Your own capacities and competencies, these things take time. One of the things I talk about in the vocation chapter is all the ways we want to short circuit, shortcut, you know, the kind of efforts that are required for vocational diligence. And I was just really, I want to recommend a book called Glittering Vices. It's actually written by, no, I was going to say she's at Baylor, but no, she's at Calvin, Rebecca DeYoung. And what she does is she examines the, you know, seven deadly sins. And what was so interesting to me was just to think about how so many of them were temporally oriented. Like, I just want a good and I want it now. And I don't want to have to go through the effort of waiting for it cultivating it, for example, like envy. Um, one of the fascinating things that she said about envy was that, you know, you can't necessarily, one of the ways that we sort of counter envy is that we cultivate our own vocation. So instead of, you know, wishing ill on my neighbor who does things better than I do, well, why don't I just actually like work on cultivating my own character and competencies? So these things take time. And I think, 
a new teacher, leader, parent just has to learn that. Like wisdom is very, it's fits and starts, right? You don't get wisdom because you downloaded it. You get wisdom because you tried something and it didn't work. You know, you submitted yourself to a process that was fitful um, and human. And you don't have wisdom without making mistakes. And that's the other thing that I would say too, is that there's something really hopeful about that. That the trajectory of gaining wisdom, like like let's say at the end of our lives, if you know, we could look back and say, I think I've gained some wisdom. The only way that will have been possible is by mistakes as well. And so there's something like, you know, you can't not, you can't learn without mistakes, I guess. And that, how encouraging is that for teaching our children, teaching our students, like giving them a framework that's so generous and so hopeful, like, you know, your mistakes are not the thing that will forever define you. They're actually just your growth point. And, you know, if you submitted to God, you can learn as you learn wisdom. Yes. And I would add, it's not even your mistakes that will define you. It's not your performance that will will define you either. It's not your successes either. And we push on this. Our second class in our master's program is Christianity and leadership. So it's integrating your identity into your leadership. And it's not who you are, but it's whose you are. Mm. And so if you are God's, and he has called you by name, that's it, like done. Christ covers that for you. And so then I think this goes back to your first book that teach us to want, if we reorient our loves to the things that actually matter, that gets us into that correct orientation where wisdom's more likely to follow. So mm. even when we make mistakes, we're making mistakes in the right direction. We're not making yes. mistakes in ways that become about us. It's about how we allow God's light to reflect off of us to others. It's not even, as Baylor has a great uh, line, be the light, which is <laughs> ambiguous, whatever. <But> the- <laughs> theologically problematic in that what we are is we're reflecting God's light. Yes. We are not the light. It's Ephesians yes. five thirteen. Like we we reflect his light. That's not it's not yeah. coming from us. It's it's him through us. And so I think that's freeing. And so mm-hmm. and yeah, we were talking about this briefly right before we jumped on, but I was listening to a podcast just yesterday. Uh, it's called People I Mostly Admire. It's Steve Levitt. He uh, wrote with with Dubner. He wrote the book Freakonomics, and now they both have their own podcasts. And uh, he was interviewing Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote the book Sapiens, which in full disclosure, I have not read. But in the discussion, they basically both came to the point that the life is meaningless. And once we embrace that, then we can begin to enjoy life instead of searching for meaning, which every person I've ever known searches for meaning mm-hmm. some level. It feels like it's a God-given intrinsic desire that we want to have meaning, which I don't see an evolutionary advantage <laughs> to desiring meaning. So to me, mm-hmm. that's the God-shaped hole C.S. Lewis talks about in that we've been wired a certain way. And and I don't know another way to explain it other than that there's something more than what is physically around us. But they they had gotten to the point that life's meaningless. Uh, Ecclesiastes is true. (laughs) They didn't cite Ecclesiastes, (laughs) but it just stops there. Nothing's new under the sun. None of it matters. So reduce suffering. They had a very Buddhist bent toward reducing suffering for yourself and for others, and that's as good as it gets. So if that's the starting point of some people, um, 
isn't that a challenge for how we order our time, especially as you start thinking about the eight habits, which we'll jump into next that you describe in the book. But if you have people that are starting with not with not from faith, but from a position that, that life is meaningless, doesn't that make wisdom really hard to get at? Absolutely. I mean, wisdom, wisdom, it assumes a submission to a set of principles and instruction yes. beyond yourself. So essentially, I mean, I always find it so convenient, you know, that people can just, you know, ignore <laughs> millennia of um, even just wisdom traditions. Let's just say that you're not a Christian. Well, there are wisdom traditions that share a lot in common um, throughout history. Um, and so I just think it's just so interesting how people come into the 21st century and they're like, gosh, you know, we know everything. <laughs> we know that life yes. has, we know that life has no meaning. And I think that there's something really sort of futile and self-preoccupied about that. It's it's a very myopic kind of sense because wisdom begs you to ask questions about, you know, who exists beyond me? You know, what what do I have to learn? And how what learning what submission will that learning require? And I think that's the piece that a lot of people don't ever want. To, like, we don't want to submit to things that either we don't like or we don't understand or maybe just don't come naturally to us. You know, I'll submit to the idea that I want to create efficiencies so I can get more done. But do I want to submit to things that are going to take, take time and maybe to take me through a valley of suffering or a wilderness for a greater purpose? You know, wisdom has something to say about, for example, the meaning to suffering. So if you accept that life isn't, it has no meaning, well, gosh, you know, that's pretty, pretty dire for your good days and really pretty terrible for like, it's horrible for your bad days, you know, God forbid you get cancer. And now you have you know, you didn't have meaning in your happiest moments, and now you certainly don't have it in your terminal diagnosis. And I think that there are people like Charles Taylor in a secular age would say that this, the kind of humanist mentality um, really celebrates their own heroism. Like, I don't need God. You know, I don't right. need a meaning to live for. I get to decide these things for myself. We need to recover what is really beautiful, and I don't want to say heroic, but I want to just say be a beautiful good about virtue <laughs> and about submission to a wisdom beyond yourself. Um, so, I think it's so interesting. It is actually, I would have to say, like a very privileged position to declare that everything is meaningless. I mean, there are a lot of people, we know people all throughout history who have had to find meaning in their suffering in order to survive it. And um, I think you're right. Human beings search for meaning. Well, this is just something that we know. And if you don't have meaning, by what criteria do you make your decisions in time? Right. You know? There's, it's impossible to order your time without wisdom. And that's what I felt so mm -hmm. compelling about the thesis of your book. And so then you jump into these eight habits. It's begin, receive, belong, offer, wait, practice, enjoy, remember. And so as we think about that with wisdom as the construct that drives the, the why of the, 
the why of the how. <laughs> so yeah, this tech, that's right. Are gonna are gonna flow from the why. Uh, sure. What's the most challenging one of those habits for you? And is there one that's been particularly life giving for you? So one that's been particularly challenging. It might be the same one. I don't know, but one that's mm. been challenging and one that's particularly life giving. Mm. This is going to sound, you know, really kind of paradoxical, I guess, but. I would say that the habit that's hardest for me is to enjoy, you know, which is mm. one of the later chapters. Um, I think that people who are very driven toward productivity and to getting things done, you know, like it's actually really sad and tragic that like we find our greatest joy in like tricking things off of our list. And I've actually done a really interesting um, sort of exploration of this in a couple of different workshops that I've taught where we open up a couple of passages from David Allen's Getting Things Done. And it's really interesting because if you, what he is selling you on as a reader and what many time management people sell you on is joy. Like you are going to have joy and also peace if you practice these things and like somehow you get more time in your day, which we know never happens. You create more efficiencies. You just try to do more things. Um, and so joy, like enjoyment um, requires you. So one of the researchers that I talk about is Harmit Rosa, who's a German. I think he's, I can't remember if he's a sociologist, cultural theorist, but he talks about time's acceleration, how the conditions of time today are such that like really our experience of time is speeding up. But your most time full moments are really honestly your most joyful mo moments where you encounter the world, where you have an encounter maybe with nature or with a beautiful piece of music or an experience of God or dinner around the table with friends. And we all know that, right? Time slows down when you're experiencing joy. And that's actually something I noticed in my pandemic journal too, as I was just recording my life in time. Those were the moments that just obviously were always the most meaningful. And, but it's hard to kind of fit them in. I hate to say that, but I have a lot to get done, right? And it's hard to observe joy. Like, and I, I say observe, I don't want to say make time for joy, but observe time for joy because nobody makes time. We have the same amount of time as everybody else. Um, but how do we prioritize it? How do we prioritize experiences of community, of just, you know, really having nothing to do other than take a walk in the ravine close to your house or going to an art museum, you know, these experiences. Um, so that's hard for me. I have to admit that we, it's just, it's just not something that comes naturally to me, which probably your wife would, would, um, would, would say was true. Well, and I think she would say it's true of me as well. And so she's a nice common denominator. My wife's one of the most relaxed, laid back, just enjoy being with people and don't get cluttered mm -hmm. up. And she's she's very productive, but she's not productive for the sake of being productive, which I mm -hmm. think is very different than uh, you and I. And so I, I do get a sense that I'm always I've got to always be producing, and and I read. I read everything on double speed. I, Audible is always on, podcasts are always on. I'm always consuming information because I have to be productive. I have a hard time even stopping just to listen to music because it mm -hmm. feels unproductive. 
And so you have uh, in the book that for 30 years, you've been a reader of time management books. It's, uh, as someone else has put it, <laughs> this is to say I have indulged in the pleasure entertained in the fantasy that time can be managed. And so then you <laughs> mentioned getting things done and essentialism, which I, I really liked essentialism when I read it. And then I just, Greg McCown came out after having written essentialism, you know, a decade later, he came out with effortless this last year. And I found that to be really helpful in letting it, finding joy in the most essential things, because Mm. sometimes the essential things overwhelm us, even if you eliminate the non-essential things, which I think is very wise. And I think it can only be done through wisdom because you can only identify what isn't essential through wisdom and having priorities and knowing whose you are and, and what matters most. But even still, you know, your, your mom's situation that you're now in Ohio and you had to leave a place you love to be there because you want to be there. You love your mom and, and you found good things about being in Cincinnati, but that can be overwhelming. And so we fall into this trap and, and you wrote about this at the end of the book about the way we think about time. And I, this resonated for me. So you say it's this last word I write about an opponent of my daughter, Audrey, on her 16th birthday. And you wrote this great short poems, this snippet that you had in there. And you said this, I don't ultimately worry about failing to get things done. I'm too type A for that. Like, amen. (laughs) Uh, I worry that time is irretrievable. Mm-hmm. And so that made me go to another author. Now, this is another, we're, we're adding another atheist to the podcast here. <laughs> I, I think it's really helpful to read all sides yeah. of things to understand how people come at things. But Oliver Berkman wrote in 4,000 Weeks, the premise is we have on average about 4,000 weeks to live, which is a, which is a very interesting way to look at life. He, we will ultimately all die with things left undone. And so don't we just have to come to terms with how we procrastinate and use wisdom to decide how we're going to do things? I mean, how Mm. do you respond to Berkman's point? It's not about prioritizing what we will do. It's prioritizing what we won't do. Does that resonate for you or do you push back on that? How how do you feel about that take from Berkman? I mean, I think Berkman, he's such an interesting case because I actually had been reading him on time management. I mean, I read an article. um, He's just written articles in The Guardian that I've read, you know, throughout the years. And then all of a sudden he's like kind of basically saying the same thing I am that time management, like just it's found wanting as a genre, as an industry, you know, even as a concept. Um, And he starts with mortality. I think that the idea of procrastination, like on the one hand, I mean, I actually say, yes, I do agree with that because I think wisdom, so a category of time that I came to as I was studying the book of Ecclesiastes was this idea of fitting time, that what wisdom would ask us to examine about our current season of life is what is required for faithfulness now, because there are some things that cannot be put off. For example, I cannot care for my mother who has Alzheimer's in 10 years. Like I can't put that off. Like it's now you can't, um, there are just certain things that have like an expiration date. You can't love your young children Forever, you know, you there are certain things that are required when they're young that you will never be able to get back. So time is irretrievable in some ways. If you don't live fitting time, if you don't exercise, like practice the wisdom of saying, what is my season of life now? What are the particular 
obligations of now, you know, from God. Don't, of course, you know, don't let other people put obligations on you that don't exist. I mean, lots of people would say it is fitting that you do the X for me right now. <laughs> um, so this is all in the orientation of like, okay, my life as surrendered to God, wisdom now, fitting time now. So yeah, procrastinate some things if you can. Um, you know, I've even thought about that. Of course, you know, as a writer, I'm always thinking about like, what's the next project? And I had, oh, a burning idea that I, you know, I talked to Ryan about actually in November. I thought this would be just a wonderful follow-up to In Good Time. And it is, you know, it really would make sense to do it like soon. And we just kind of said, and on the one hand, you could make the argument it's fitting to do it now because the book is out and it would be a great follow-up. But I've already decided what's fitting for this season. It's that I, you know, have a margin in my life to care for my mom and that we get ourselves settled into this new city. You know, I don't, you can't just pick up your life from one place where you've rooted it for 11 years, you know, transplant yourself somewhere else and just expect that, you know, you can operate with all the efficiencies you used to. You don't know how to get around. You don't know anybody, you know, you don't like, it just takes time. Um, so yes, procrastinate what isn't fitting for now. And it may never be fitting. You know, I thought that I would someday, I've had two times in my life where I thought I would go back for a PhD. The first time, two months later, I learned, well, this was actually just for a second master's. I learned that I was pregnant with the twins. (laughs) Um, the second time, you know, I just tried to get an application together and couldn't um, because of all of the responsibilities that I had. And so it's just, it hasn't been fitting for me to do that. And sometimes I wonder, was that a failure of ambition? Maybe. Um, And maybe it was just that I accepted the constraints of my life and the particular invitations of the season. And I'm just trying to live faithfully into those. Yeah. So I think so well said. I love the idea of fitting time. But uh, so if you were to sum up, the book is In Good Time, Eight Habits for Reimagining Productivity, Resisting Hurry, and Practicing Peace. So educators, definitely worth your time to take the time to read this because I think it'll give you a reframing on, on the way we do our work. But if you had a final piece of encouragement to educators as they think about time, from the book or just even since you've written the book, something that you've come to, um, what would you leave us with today, Jed? You know, I would think about that tree on the cover of In Good Time. And it really is a unifying image for the book and the way that I think about time. And I think it's the reason, there's a reason why God gave us the image of a tree in Psalm 1 as the flourishing human life. You can't grow an oak, a great oak, you know, in a week. And you not in a year and really not even in decades. And when you think about that tree, I mean, you can think about your students as the tree, you know, and you might know them for one year and you're one year, one ring, one, you know, ring on that um, trunk of the tree. And people have come before and people will come after you. And there's a great piece, I think, that comes when we realize our work is important and yet not messianic. We ourselves require time. It just takes time to grow a human life. It takes time to build strong communities. The tree is, I think, a very communal image because when we learn about trees, we know that 
They exchange all kinds of information through their root networks. And so this isn't just an individualistic image. It's an image of a flourishing community. So I'd, I'd want people to just think about the tree <laughs> and think about what it's like to grow a tree, what's required to grow a tree, to strengthen a tree, and, and then sort of apply that into life. And to remember, too, that why does a tree grow? <laughs> a tree grows because of sun, because of rain. And who gives sun and who gives rain? You know, these things are received gifts that the tree, the tree receives these gifts. You know, you can't manufacture your own growth. And I think that's also super helpful and hopeful to think about. Yeah, I'm so grateful you brought up and the book, the Just Teaching book with the last chapter is Growing Giants. And it goes back to the redwood sequoias, which if you've ever been to the redwood oh. sequoias, they're just incredible because they're over 300 feet tall or over 6,000 tons. They have the, they've been around since before Christ <laughs> and their roots go down six to 12 feet, which seems like a physical impossibility, but it's because they're networked together. They actually share support. They share nutrients. They share that. So the God gives all those gifts, but that is a living organism that when yeah. in community is so powerful. And so as educators, we don't ever want to miss the forest for the trees, but we also don't want to miss the individual tree for the forest. Yeah. So, seeing that individual, knowing that's how God sees us and that's how works a call to see others, and then living into that and being that for each other, I think the tree metaphor is is powerful for all the mm -hmm. reasons that you, you gave. So, Jen, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I appreciate all the writing that you do, the work you do, and the way you're allowing the Lord to use you in others' lives. So, thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah. Thanks for your invitation, John. It was fun. I love the way Jen wrapped up that conversation with the idea of being a ring on the tree of the students that we serve. We come alongside for a while. We help them grow. We help them flourish because that's the role that we've been given. And so I hope that in the week to come, you will find encouragement and joy in being part of that ring uh, on the tree that will show the impact of your life on the life of the students that you serve. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Baylor Center for School Leadership. Watch for Dr. John Eckert's first book in the series starting in January 2023.